traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Climate change, alongside events in Russia and Ukraine, is forcing countries in the rich world to move quickly away from fossil fuels towards greener and less easily monopolized sources of energy. That transition should eventually change the balance of power between oil and gas producing countries on the one hand and new green commodity superpowers on the other. That sounds like an improvement. Hydrocarbons, after all, power repressive regimes as well as cars, planes and power stations. But would this new world really be a better one? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix, otherwise known as Schumpeter for my weekly column. And in today's show, we'll explore who's set to win and lose from the green energy revolution. We'll visit the Atacama Desert in Chile, where abundant reserves of lithium are being extracted to produce batteries. It's Chile's largest salt flat, measuring more than 3,000 square kilometres. And we'll hear from one of the world's biggest mining companies, which is knee-deep in the energy transition. We need to decarbonise consistently, at scale, across all sectors, simultaneously at unprecedented speed. And we'll delve into the importance of copper. Copper has been the most useful metal on the planet for over 10,000 years. We'll also look at what could go wrong for those countries whose newly in-demand resources look set to deliver them both wealth and global clout. The Economist's finance correspondent, Mathieu Favas, has been writing about this in great detail. Hey, Mathieu, how are you doing? Hey, Henry. Good to be here. So we've talked about the energy transition for quite a few years now. Is there evidence that it's really starting to happen? Well, it definitely needs to happen because if we don't move faster towards net zero by 2050, we won't get global warming below 2 degrees. 1.5 degrees is the goal. 2 degrees is already ambitious. And to do that, we need to win ourselves off dirty fuels, which means switching to cleaner energy sources. The International Energy Agency predicts that wind and solar could account for 70% of power generation by 2050, up from 9% in 2020. So it's a big shift. And that translates into a huge demand for the metals, such as copper, cobalt, lithium and nickel, that are vital for the technologies underpinning everything from electric cars to renewables. The market size for such green minerals could increase almost sevenfold by 2030. And on top of that, there is the Ukraine war. Is that having an influence too on this energy shift? Yes, it's a big catalyst, actually, because Russia supplies between 10 and 25 percent of the world's oil, gas and coal exports, so depending on the fuel. 
And this month, the EU announced that it's aiming for energy independence from Russia by 2030. And there's been a number of such announcements since the war started. And this increases the necessity for a big shift across to renewables and therefore demand for these metals. And like the petrostates that were formed after the Second World War when the world shifted very fast to, to oil that became the black gold at the time. So that's Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait. They saw their wealth multiply in a matter of basically a decade. The countries that are well endowed with these green metals that we're going to discuss could become the electrostates of the future. Electrostates. Wow, that's a great word. So I guess we'll start thinking about not just electrostates, but electrodollar economies and other parallels with the oil world of the past. So why don't you give us a breakdown of some of these valuable materials? What we're basically talking about here are the key ingredients of the green transition. And one of the people I talked to for this podcast spends his life tracking the availability of these resources. Uh, he's called Hugh McKay. He's the chief economist at BHP, which is the world's biggest mining company by market capitalization. Well, the way we categorize the critical minerals that will go into the building blocks of the infrastructure, if you like, of the energy transition, there's a number of them. We're talking dozens, all with niche applications. But the big ones, the ones which will provide the greatest contribution to the hardware of decarbonization, Actually, steel is critical to the hardware of decarbonisation. Copper, absolutely essential to the electrification megatrend. Nickel, critical to the batteries, which will power the electrification of transport. And then you get the other battery raw materials, lithium, graphite, manganese. And then you start to get into the rare earth end of the equation, which will be used in high-performance magnets and the like. And that's actually a, a plurality of minerals, all quite small markets, but collectively large. So copper, nickel, rare earths, where are we most likely to find this extraordinary variety of metals and minerals? Well, one of the first things to say at the top of that is that much like fossil fuel reserves, these commodities are distributed unevenly. So some countries have uh, none at all while others are blessed with uh, a lot of it, vast deposits. And these would-be electrostates include some rich democracies. Australia is one. Uh, it has troves of all the most important metals. Others are autocracies. You know, perhaps the starkest example here is Congo, which has 46% of global cobalt reserves. It actually produces right now today 70% of the world's cobalt. China itself is home to a lot of aluminium, copper, lithium, and a lot of other minerals as well, rare earth, for example. And then you've got also, kind of in between, you've got poorer democracies in Asia and Latin America, which may also hit the jackpot. Indonesia sits on mountains of nickel. Peru holds nearly a quarter of the world's silver. Chile is perhaps, you know, the superstar of this, this group. Um, it's home to a quarter uh, of, its, uh, of the world's copper deposits, much of them in the Atacama Desert. Yes, and how rapidly is demand for these metals and minerals likely to increase? Well, it varies a lot between them, as Hugh McKay of BHP told me. Oh, there are some absolute extremes. For the markets which are already large, where traditional end uses are already considerable, like the nickels and the coppers, you're looking at a doubling of cumulative demand for copper, a little bit more. You're looking at a quadrupling for nickel. But once you get to some of those niche commodities, such as lithium, you're getting to even larger multiples than that. 
because they're going from very, very niche applications to broad application in the megatrends that we're going to see over coming decades. Now, BHP is a very large company, so we do need to be targeting our activities to the markets which are already large, because those big markets, that reflects the fact that those minerals are abundant and they can be extracted affordably, and also their application in industry is very, very effective. And that's why copper is the huge industry it is today. And that's why it's probably the flagship of the energy transition in our view. Copper isn't exactly a newly desired commodity, right? I mean, it goes back millennia. How much is there left to get at? And how easy is it to get it out the ground? Well, I spoke with Joanne Fries, who is the boss of a copper mining exploration company known as a junior mining company. She's been in the business for nearly 45 years, and she's had very deep experience of both the usefulness of copper, how indispensable it is, but also the difficulties of getting to it. I'm a geologist and CEO of two junior companies, Candente Copper Corp and Charlie Gold Corp. Started in exploration in 1979. I ended up working in Peru in the mid-90s, and it was really well known as a silver, lead, zinc, small mines. But during the 90s, there were huge discoveries. And so Peru really took off as as a metal-producing country. It's second in the world for producing copper now. How has the role of, of copper evolved over time, over the course of your career? Copper has been the most useful metal on the planet for over 10,000 years. It's a really, really basic metal. You need it in every refrigerator, every car, every cell phone, every computer, and then a lot of, you know, uses in your house, piping and such, electricity, and then infrastructure. So it's really needed for every developing country and and basic development. Then comes along the revolution, the EV world, and you need four times the amount of copper in an electric vehicle than you did in a standard combustion engine. And the other thing that's been really very important is what COVID has done to the world. Now, first of all, it's taken out a lot of the supply. It's made it difficult to get the metal to market. But in addition to that, COVID has really brought to attention the needs for social equalization. For instance, you know, everybody needs internet now because it's your health and it's your education. Um, So COVID has has made a huge impact on the the metals markets. For background, when we bought our copper project from the Peruvian government in 2000, when copper was trading between 60 cents and 80 cents a pound, we bought it for $75,000. The project, to be honest, in those days did not look economic. And now copper, of course, is around $4.67 a pound. And so economics have changed drastically. What word would you use to describe the increase in... um in demand that we're likely to see. Is that, is, that, is that a gentle increase? Is that a boom? It's explosive. Absolutely. It is explosive. Absolutely phenomenal. They're talking about, so Crew has talked, and that's one of the leading providers of uh, analysis prices and consulting in mining and metals markets. They predict a, a deficit of 4.7 million metric tons of copper by 2030. Trafigura, who's one of the largest commodity trading, says 10 million ton deficit. That's enormous. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. It's something I've never seen in my life. And I'm, you know, but it's very exciting too. 
And to be honest, I have a motto and that is, and I love gold. Gold is money, but copper is life. <laughs> and obviously this uh, surge in demand uh, is already feeding into a much higher price. That's a very strong signal for, for supply to react, right, to try and, and match this demand. Uh, what are the, the key difficulties or impediments for that supply to match demand on time? There are so many things that, that happen in the copper world. First of all, making the discovery, finding the copper is not easy. And it takes a lot of drilling. We've spent $63 million dollars, and we've drilled over 200,000 meters of core. And we've drilled um, almost 300 drill holes. And that's just in our one deposit, Canyon Norte. That doesn't include our other two that we, well, one is half explored and the other isn't explored at all yet. So it's a phenomenal amount of work it takes to understand, actually years of studying it, to understand where, where the best parts of it are, where you're going to find the highest grades, how you're going to design a mine around it. You have to work with the locals. They can be different kinds of farming, but often in, in various poor countries, it's their subsistence farming, and they're very scared of a mine coming in thin their backyard and know what, what will all that mean. And then just figuring out um, how everybody can get benefit benefited from the development of a mine locally and, and, and in the greater picture. And now there, there are new technologies that are great in, I would say, the, the way you mine the way you protect the environment. But there hasn't been a lot of technology in how to find it. So that, those are hard and that takes years. But the return on the investment at the end of the day should be very good because of the high prices of copper. So Mathieu, as Joanne said, demand is exploding. But there's a long lead time, right, on getting these materials out of the ground. It's not as if these giant holes that are so big that when you see them, they absolutely take your breath away, can be dug overnight. Uh, no, that's right. I mean, the, the picture we have in this week's issue is taken from very, very high in the sky, and you have these massive cycles and holes. As you say, there's, they can be seen from space, right? Well, this sort of mines, the IEA, official forecaster for these things, estimate that the ones that were built in the past decade, they took, on average, 16 years to build. So that's a lot. You know, if, if you start them today, that takes us to, what, 2038? And to meet demand by 2040, which is just two years after the year I just said, the industry will have to splash out. Well, it has to splash out now. I mean, this needs to happen really very soon. And the sums are really big. So it's about $2 trillion to get to the supply we need for green metals overall by 2040. And then if you look at recent projects, it suggests that digging enough copper and nickel by 2030 That would require between $250 and $350 billion. And that's on top of all the other energy infrastructure that we've talked about in recent podcasts, including the cost of putting out enormous solar farms and wind farms and the cost of electrolyzers for hydrogen and, and all that sort of thing. So this is on top of a tremendous amount of additional spending in other aspects of the energy transition, which I, I guess makes you realize what an enormous challenge it is ahead. And just to come back to the metals themselves, how much does the quality of the reserves reduce over time, particularly, I guess, when we're talking about copper, uh, which has been mined for so long? I mean, there's great history on this. So 
Individual mines tend to degrade over time as the most accessible ores. As these are retrieved, you find that the, the content in the pure metal uh, declines. But also the highest concentrated um, and the most accessible potential mining sites, uh, they're running out, especially in the most stable countries where miners like to operate. So the future reserves are getting harder to get to. I actually asked Hugh McKay from BHP what this means for future supply. None of the metals that we've discussed yet are, are scarce in the Earth's crust. What is scarce is units of metal which are high-grade and are able to be extracted in an affordable way. So don't sort of get out your, uh, your pencil and a ruler, do a horizontal line across the screen saying, OK, that's the reserve. Here's my electric vehicle projection. We're going to run out of metal. That's just not the case. The industry will meet this demand. What the industry needs to do is get better and better and better at extracting those lower grades and bringing that to market in an affordable way. We can't avoid geological inflation in, in these metals, but we can push back hard against it. And I've got every confidence that over the coming decades, the industry will unlock the productivity gains, which uh, keeps prices at a reasonable level. So the best way of improving productivity is through innovation, I guess. And Mathieu, what sort of innovation have you come across that could really help improve the possibility of getting enough minerals out of the ground? Well, it's interesting because quite a few miners, when you speak to them, or actually more like people who observe the mining industry, they would say that there's not been like a ton of innovation in recent decades. But in recent years, actually, there's been a few promising developments. So, for example, last year, BHP and Equinor, which is Norway's state-backed energy firm, they invested in an artificial intelligence startup that sifted through 20 million pages at the time of state and scientific archives to try and find out where the new deposits might be. So instead of looking in the soil itself, they basically use a sort of probabilistic approach to identify where the, the new mines might be, the new deposit might be. And in time, you can imagine that other technological uh, breakthrough could even make uh, exploring seafloors profitable. It's been a bit of a sci-fi dream for, for a while. Dream or nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> nightmare for the miners. But the, the fact is that the world's you know, 67 southern kilometers of, of mid-ocean ridges, so the ones that are active because there are volcanoes underneath or the, the tectonic plaques are, are rubbing against each other, they contain a lot of copper, uh, of cobalt and other minerals which could help mint new electrostates. You know, Fiji, for example, has 8% of the mining rights to those, uh, those ridges, and Norway as 5.5%. That's a very little known fact. So this creates possibility for little island states like Fiji to actually become, um, you know, very rich. Yes, exactly. And presumably they won't get to these deposits uh, on their own. They'll, they'll, they'll have to rely on the expertise and capital of, of foreign companies. Uh, but yes, potentially they could be quite transformative. But... You know, one caveat to that, or one remark we should make, is that innovation also for, for miners, it makes future returns less certain because the high prices that they need for you know, a long period of time to make them confident to invest in all these new technologies, risky places, very deep deposits to extract, they will also encourage big buyers of the metals to seek alternatives 
so, you know, a famous example is, is Tesla, which has reduced cobalt content of its batteries from one third to less than 5%. So interesting what you say, but also kind of worrying, I guess, that there could still be this big question hanging over returns. There has to be the profit incentive for this. And uncertainty of returns, we make either, you know, investment less likely or it means that miners will want or wait for much higher prices than they are today and they're already really high. We'll talk about that and what it means for the countries where these reserves are concentrated in just a minute. But first, here's a reminder. For lots more analysis like this, including Mathieu's article about how new commodity superpowers will be minted by this renewable shift, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer and you'll find that link in the notes for this episode. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As Mattia has said, the metals that are essential to our electronics and batteries aren't spread evenly around the world. Many are concentrated in just a few countries. Lithium, a metal used in the batteries for electric vehicles and phones and other energy storage applications, will be needed in far higher quantities as the world shifts away from fossil fuels. And 42% of global reserves are in just one South American country, Chile. Our correspondent, John Bartlett, has been to Chile's Atacama Desert to report on what lithium mining there involves. High in the Andes, in the shadow of the 6,000-metre Licancabua volcano, lies the Salar de Atacama. It's Chile's largest salt flat, measuring more than 3,000 square kilometres and it forms part of the Lithium Triangle alongside the High Plains in western Bolivia and northern Argentina. The brine below the salt flat is rich in lithium carbonate, and two companies now extract it. One of them, Chilean chemicals giant SQM, is already the world's largest lithium producer and is planning to triple its production to 180,000 tonnes of lithium carbonate equivalent, or LCE, per year by 2030. Carlos Diaz, the company's vice president for lithium, forecasts that global demand this year will be 500,000 tonnes. By the year 2025, it will reach 1 million tonnes and nearly 2 million tonnes by 2030, he estimates. At its Salar de Atacama plant, several small pumps pull up the liquid. The concentrated brine is pumped intermittently between evaporation ponds, forming a patchwork quilt of shallow green and blue pools on the brilliant white of the salt flat. Around the Salar de Atacama, there are 18 indigenous Licanantai communities. I went to visit one of them. About 50 people live in Kamar. 
Residents there told me that the town had to be ringed with tall fences when the extraction of fresh water by mining companies at the foot of the hill, verging on the salt flat, caused donkeys to come up into the village and eat their crops. Every day, SQM brings trucks of water to the community, as the fresh water near the town has high quantities of minerals and heavy metals. Manuel Tejerina, who is 57, has lived in the village his whole life and now monitors the performance of the newly delivered solar power plant, which was part of an agreement with SQM. The plant was inaugurated on the 13th of August last year, but before that, the people in Kamar had a generator running that used 300 litres of diesel a day and cost them between 3 and 4 million pesos per month. I met him in the hangar where the plant's batteries are, and he told me he's worried about the long-term changes to the environment, such as the level of the lagoons dropping. But, he says, at least the community has received something from the rush to extract lithium in the area, rather than the profits going to the central government in the capital, Santiago. He worries, though, that when the lithium runs out, the mining companies will simply go away. We need to think where this leaves us to, he said. Emma Sosa was born and raised in Kamar. Her catering business is faltering, as she isn't able to get the right permits to serve food to the public, given that the town doesn't have regular drinking water. But she is happy to have a more stable supply of electricity as a result of the solar plant than was possible from the diesel generator. Emma told me that mining has been both good and bad for the community. She says they suffer the environmental consequences, but the money coming to the area has solved the most serious problems they have. Alejandro Bucher who is SQM's community liaison officer at the plant, told me that because the lithium industry has developed very recently, it is under more scrutiny than other types of mining. He says sustainability of operations is a priority, and he believes that in a decade's time, the Salar de Atacama Basin could become an example for the world to follow. So it's amazing how these projects are developing. Just just half a decade ago, back in 2016, I went to the Atacama Desert to look at the lithium supplies just as the market was beginning to take off. It was still really a small market at that stage. The global lithium market was about a billion dollars. But it was it was fascinating, not only just to see the beautiful arrays of, of pools that are described, but also the strange kind of dynamics of the of the market. So the SQM plant that I visited in the desert was actually powered by electricity that used batteries that involved a million lithium iron cells. And I asked where they came from. And they said, well, the lithium actually came from the SQM facility in the Atacama Desert. But then it was shipped all the way to China, turned into lithium-ion batteries, shipped back to Chile and used to power the SQM plant. So quite a bizarre round trip and one that kind of showed 
some of the inefficiencies in this market and made you think, wouldn't it be better if Chile itself was actually making the batteries as well as producing the minerals that went into them? So, Mathieu, as countries like Chile seek to increase extraction of their reserves of lithium, or as the Congo pulls more cobalt out of the ground, are they going to see a boom in their economies? Well, to a point, exactly as you imply, Henry, the minerals mania tends to make some economies rich overnight. However, um, one thing we've learned from the hydrocarbon bonanza is that the resource uh, blessing can also be a curse, which could in turn discourage further investment from the miners. How does that happen? Well, there's a number of symptoms that characterize the resource curse. For example, the oil rents that oil-rich countries have collected have meant that a lot of rival factions have fought each other to control the riches. This has fueled inequality, it has fueled conflict quite often. On the economic front, you've seen vast uh, inflows of dollars in the country, which has propped up the local currencies, which then in turn makes it harder to export other things than energy resources. That's the famous Dutch disease, right? Exactly, yes, exactly. Which means your country becomes, over time, more and more specialized in just selling hydrocarbons. So you become very dependent on the, the price of it staying high. And then as this happens and the riches are unequally distributed, typically populations grow resentful, which make domestic politics even more fractious. The worry now is that history repeats itself with some of the electoral states. They are typically quite poorly equipped to manage the windfall that could result from a resource boom. I guess they have the benefit of being able to look at the successful way that some countries have handled these windfalls in the world of oil, for example. I'm thinking of like Norway's sovereign wealth fund. But I guess there are many more examples of countries that have mishandled the bonanza that they've received. Yeah, exactly. And also this transition or this, I guess, this surge in demand is going to happen so much faster probably than the transition to oil and gas. And another thing, which is also different from the oil boom, is that much of the spending on these metals that we're speaking about, it's expected to take place by 2050, after which demand might reduce and exporters could face leaner times. This is because, you know, in contrast to oil and gas, which are fuels, here the metals are used to build the infrastructure. They're used to build the wind farms, the batteries. And in a way, it's a bit of a one-off. Then there is maintenance, but you need less metal to do that. Hence the concerns in the Atacama Desert about the mining companies pulling out eventually when demand is exhausted. Yes. Let's just talk about the investment. Is there enough investment to allow mining to increase at the scale required to meet these climate goals? No, at present, I don't think there is. I asked you McKay of BHP, and this is what he said. I think in the fullness of time, we will see that capital deployed. But right now, the answer is no. We think that we need to deploy at least a quarter of a trillion dollars on capex in the copper industry this decade to get to where we'd like to be in 2030. That sort of capital is not being deployed today. So there will be a period, we feel, when these markets are going to be running tight when the investment has not been put into place. And so the exploration needs to pick up now to get on that steep part of the S-curve for these huge drivers that we're seeing through the, the electrification megatrend. Because this is not just a 2020 story. We need to decarbonise consistently at scale 
across all sectors simultaneously at unprecedented speed. And that means that the imperative to boost supply is not a short-term or a medium-term question. It's just a perpetual question as the decades roll forward. So where would the money come from in order to fund this sort of demand for investment? Is it likely to be public sector, private sector, Are there enough incentives to attract private money here, or are you going to need both? So if you look at what's happened historically, it's typically come from the shareholders of the publicly listed firms, so the BHPs, you know, Rio Tinto is another one, Anglo-American. And what happens is, as the price rise, they typically don't rush. They're quite cautious investors. But when it reaches a certain level, they tend to all go at once, and therefore the price crashes. And that has happened recently, actually, in, in the 2010s, which is why we've not seen investment pick up recently. And these investors are staying pretty cautious, even more than they would be because of this bust that we saw only very recently. So it's likely that actually you'll need other sources of capital for that to happen. They could be private, perhaps like smaller mining firms, specialists that raise money from private investors. Or you could have financial investors like private equity firms who typically tend to be a bit less wary of taking risk. And you could see also some of the big companies that need these metals to basically produce their wares. Uh, without the metals, they can't, they can't have a business. That's, again, Tesla. You know, Tesla has uh, sealed a number of long-term partnerships with miners and traders to source some nickel from mines that don't yet operate. So they're kind of becoming vertically integrated in a sense, rather like the car companies back in the 1920s that were buying up rubber plantations so that they could make the tires. It's exactly that, yes, yes. And, you know, Tesla is the most famous. Elon Musk is a, is a notorious uh, explorer and, uh, and uh, innovator and these sort of things. But I, I suspect this, is, this you know, could happen with a number of other uh, manufacturers as well. And then finally, you could imagine perhaps some state-backed champions if countries, maybe in the West even, you know, uh, get worried about this. It's not impossible that they will mandate or allocate public funds for that to happen, for the supply of these metals. Yeah, that's, of course, what happened in the oil industry. Yes, interesting precedent. How does politics affect this? Chile is perhaps the best-run country in South America, with a stable democratic government, indeed one that's just changed hands. Mathieu, being dependent on Chile sounds better than being dependent on Russia, Saudi Arabia or Venezuela for supplies, right? Is that a possibility? Yes, uh, but sadly, a lot of the minerals that we need for the green transition, they are not mined in countries that are like Chile. From the calculations that we've done, We reckon that even if everything goes according to plan and decarbonization picks up speed, more than half of the spending on the raw metals that we need for power generation and electrification will benefit countries that right now are autocracies. And some of the places that will benefit from the transition, like Congo, like Guinea, Mongolia, they lack strong institutions. That's probably an understatement for some of these countries. So you might see a lot of corruption, you might see new oligarchs, without much benefit for ordinary people, and especially people living close to the mines. And the last thing is, like it did when oil became black gold, even countries like Chile are starting to understand that they would like to have a bigger slice of the pie. So the politics are getting a bit more tense over there. They are trying to to negotiate a bigger bargain for themselves. 
So, Matthew, I think most people looking at this question for the first time would assume that the Green Revolution will be better politically and economically as well as environmentally. Your reporting suggests that assumption is too sunny, unfortunately. Well, I don't want to be too negative about this because there's quite a bit we can do to help this transition go better. I think what we need to emphasize is that it is likely to be volatile because of the characteristics of these countries. And also because compared to the hydrocarbon revolution, which centers on you know two key commodities, oil and gas, and especially oil, here we're talking about, depending on how you count, it could be between five and seven to up to 20, 25 different metals. So it is likely to be a transition that's turbulent, and we need to be prepared for that. A good quote that was told to me by a commodities trader recently is that the energy transition is, is basically less than an, it's less an energy transition than a commodities transition. And the reality is that it's likely to be a, a pretty turbulent one. Well, I think it's going to be fascinating from a geopolitical point of view and also from a geographical point of view. I'm just seeing how the landscape is transformed by this rush for metals. So thanks, Mathieu. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you, Henry. And our thanks, too, to Joanne Fries, Hugh Mackay and John Bartlett. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us at podcasts at economist.com. The producers were Jack Gill, Amika Shortina-Nolan and Rory Galloway. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.